Welcome home. You're listening to Princeton Real Estate Podcast, and I'm your host, Laura Huntsman. And I am thrilled today to have as my guest, Tom Gates of Loan Depot. And we are discussing borrowing money. We're talking about mortgages today, all different ways to borrow money and the process itself, which can be daunting. I know I've done it myself. And and so we're going to have a conversation about that. And if after the fact, you listeners have any questions, feel free to send them to me from the website. So Tom, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Laura Huntsman. This is a pleasure. <laughs> well, it is a pleasure to have you. You have been in the mortgage industry for almost three decades. And in that time, you've only worked for two companies. Ugh. Three <laughs> I hate the sound of that. Uh, it's a long time. It's uh, I, I've been doing real estate for 22 years, and you beat me. You've been doing mortgages for It'll almost 30, 28 yeah. years. Yeah. Yep. And this reminds me, just to interrupt, of the fun that we had so many years ago when I used to do a radio program. Yes, you did. And you were a guest on my radio program, and we had more fun. We did. And we kept it light, and we kept it chattery. And yep. uh, and it just... was kind of like click and clack, real estate click. and mortgages. <laughs> so, Indeed. So I, I, I want to continue that on this podcast and really delve into because more the mortgage process has changed over the years and evolved and become very tech savvy as the market has changed the market is a hot seller's market and it's a bit chaotic and buyers are having to jump quickly and pull the trigger on a house quickly get that mortgage documentation quickly and so let's 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 talk a little bit about you and how you have evolved in this process yourself and also what took you to loan depot what made you cuz you're very picky so let's talk about where you were before i know you were at a at a firm before and now you're with loan depot and knowing you i'm sure you picked that very wisely <laughs> well yeah i think uh I tried to do that, and then some things happened that were completely out of my control, uh, which I'll explain in a minute. But uh, I think it being where I am, which is an incredibly tech-forward organization at Loan Depot, I think it matches nicely with this un unbelievably brisk market that we are in today and have been in for the last certainly 15 months, if not a little yes. bit longer. Yep. Yep. And so that some of the tools that we have now are are really playing well into that hurry, 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 got to get it done quickly sort of uh, uh, situation that we're in. So yeah, um, I as we mentioned, I've been doing this 28 years. Um, I really have only made one job change in all of those years. Um, I was with the first organization for 17. And then back in 2010, I made the decision to uh, leave uh, a place where I had in, really enjoyed a wonderful career, but it was time to move. And I chose a, a, a pretty smallish company called uh, Mortgage Master, which was based up in Massachusetts. And everything was just fabulous, wonderful, everything I hoped it would be. And then four years into it, Loan Depot shows up and uh, they, they purchased the company that I was with. And while I congratulated the owner of the company, because I'm sure he did well with that event, um, I thought, oh boy, new software, new people, new management. <laughs> how's the, you know, how's the pricing? Am I going to be able to be competitive? Right. And by golly, that was seven years ago, going on seven years ago. So I guess so, you were going to be competitive. <laughs> at each, you know, at each milestone, I sort of thought, huh, okay, well, they're doing this pretty well. They're doing that yep. pretty well. So I just couldn't see any reason to, to look further. And uh, despite Loan Depot happening completely unbeknownst to me and out of my control, it's been a it's been a it's wonderful been a place. It really yeah, has it's been a gift. It I've really seen has. the television ads, and those are impressive. Tell me what Loan Depot is. It's not a mortgage brokerage firm. It's not. Uh, it is a lender, but it's a different kind of lender. Tell me. Tell me more about what Loan Depot actually is and how it differs from from other bigger banks. Sure, it is a non-bank, let's just say that. It's a non-bank lender. 
So in the mortgage world, there are banks who lend their own money. And then there are uh, brokers who don't lend their own money. They brokers uh, work to originate a loan and then they send it off to a third party uh, and, and that third party will underwrite it and basically close it and handle it from that moment onwards. And then there's uh, the non-bank lending community and that's where we fit in. So we, we handle the process from A to Z and after Z, when you've signed all the papers and moved into your new home, your mortgage is with us. It's with Loan Depot. Right. Uh, there's a reasonably good chance that we'll keep that loan and service it in our own portfolio. Um, but there's also a chance that that it might be sold into the secondary market, we call it. And at that point, we put those loans out to the highest bidder. And it may wind up, your loan may wind up with a with another big bank. Um, but the 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 neat thing about working with a non-bank lender particularly a non-bank lender that's as large as we are, is we have relationships with all of these institutions throughout the country. So if Bank A is hyper-competitive this week, but next month, next week, next quarter, next year, they've decided that they really don't care so much about being in the mortgage business or originating mortgage loans, well, then their pricing is going to get, uh, will be less competitive. And that's okay because we still right. have Bank C and Bank D and Bank E and Bank F, and so it gives us a, a great amount of flexibility. Right. And uh, and as far as the what I mentioned before about either selling the loan or maybe servicing it in, in our own portfolio, well, because we're so big, and by big we're in the top five lenders nationally, and that includes okay. all the big banks. So there are in that top five, there are three ginormous banks who you've heard of. Yep. And then there are two significant um, non-bank lenders, and we're one of those two. So we're pretty proud of that position. And yep. you know, we're doing 10, 11, 12, 13 billion dollars a month these days. So it's um That's it's amazing. not a small place. Yeah. And and with that size and with that volume comes some pretty nice benefits uh, when we're working with our all of our lending partners. So why should I, as a buyer who's looking for a mortgage, why should I choose you and Loan Depot? Well, I think the two, two primary reasons, service and price, okay. um, not too different from any industry. Um, I think that, that my, my team, which is myself and my son, uh, my son joined my practice almost six months ago, and that's been arguably the best move I've made in my 28 years of doing this. But it it really does come down to service. And um, Loan Depot is filled with Tom Gates's people who return phone calls, people who know the what they're doing, people who right. are prompt and courteous and friendly and available to get the job done. Right. Um, so that's service. And then price, of course, if if my service is really off the charts, great. And then someone says, "Well, hey Tom, what you know? What's your rate?" And I say five percent, and everybody else is at three percent. Well, I'm right. probably not going to win that business, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So, uh, again, I think because of our size and our our ability to negotiate with the entire secondary market, which is all the all the banks and and uh, and non bank lenders that are buying mortgages out there, uh, we're we're able to negotiate pretty strongly and and get fabulous rates. And one of the things that is that people really don't like about the mortgage process is all the paperwork, having to pull out all of their tax returns and their pay stubs and get all of that together. It 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 just makes people cringe. You all are a lot more technologically proficient, aren't you? And that that can kind of ease that burden when people are applying for loans. Yeah, so thanks for asking that because it's it's the uh, perfect uh, entree to the the digital market mortgage marketplace, which we're very, very heavily invested in, and we've we've invested not by buying uh, off the shelf software and off the shelf processing. Uh, there is some of that out there, um, but our senior management uh, made the decision probably well probably when they founded the company only 11 years ago, 
uh, to be incredibly tech forward. So the investment was in um, internal developers, internal software engineers, internal mortgage experts to really build a system from the ground up. So when we talk about our digital mortgage, um, we're using uh, all internal internally developed products, which frankly, when I joined the company, I thought, well, that all sounds pretty good, but what does it really mean? And right. it took a while for them to roll it out to uh, to those of us that joined the company by acquisition because of you know connectivity and and change over from one system to the next. It just took. 12 or 18 months. But by the time they rolled it out, I thought, wow, this is this is pretty neat. And and frankly, that was in 2018. And in the three years since, it's just gotten smoother and faster and more sophisticated and more uh, intuitive for the borrower, uh, more intuitive for me as the as the originator and as our processing and underwriting team uh also, it just has become simpler. So what does that really mean? What that means is that if you put in a detailed mortgage application when you're, as the customer, you're on you know day one input, the, right. more, the more information you can put in, um, the better the outcome and the easier the outcome. So if you're a W-2 employee and you're working for, uh, let's say, Bristol-Myers Squibb, right. and you, you have a salary. And let's say uh, your spouse works for a similar type of company and, and they too have a salary as opposed to someone who's self-employed. That's a little different. Uh, it's not quite as seamless, but it's still, right. uh, there are benefits there. But just assume that you're in a salaried position. Um, we have tools that go directly to your company through these third parties that exist in the cloud. So again, if you put your information in Bristol-Myers Squibb and you take the time to put perhaps an address and a phone number, uh, we're able to go to the cloud and digitally verify not only your employment, but also your income. And not only your income, but we know what you made last year. Right. We know what the breakdown was for your base salary and your bonus last year. So you don't perhaps, need all those tax returns and so, you don't need... All exactly. That documentation pulled out exactly. of my paper bag that I keep in the closet. <laughs> no tax return. I'm not kidding. No, no, a paper bag in your closet. That's a fire that's, starter for that's goodness sake. That's my receipt holder. That's my receipt holder. Oh, I'll bet your husband loves that. Oh, does he ever? <laughs> so yeah, none of that. I mean, it all happens so that we don't need a pay stub. We don't need a bank state uh, a tax return. We don't need a W two. And, and as far as the bank statement, which I just mentioned by mistake, we don't need those either, generally speaking. So if right. you put in your information, oh, I have my money at PNC Bank or Wells Fargo or wherever, and you give us your account number, and you do have to give your PIN, right? The dreaded PIN that you you know, you know put into your ATM. Right. Some people have a hard time letting go of that, and I right. totally understand, but it is secure, it is tested, it is monitored, it's audited, it's reviewed, it is safe. Right. Um, and when you do that, we're now able to, again, through the cloud, through third parties, verify not only your your how much you have in the bank, but we're able to review your transaction history for the last couple of months. And for those of you that are listening that have gotten mortgages, you know that we need to see two full months of statements right? so that we can understand the cash flow in from your employment. And we also look for unusual deposits. So all of that can come into us digitally um, so that at the end of that data input, I will give a client a call and say, hey, thanks so much for putting in your application. I see you work at Bristol-Myers Squibb. I see you've, uh, you've given us the information from your bank accounts. Thank you very much. Let me run it through my automated underwriting system. And I do that and it takes about two minutes. And then I can come back and say, hey, goodness, you're good to go. Go buy a house for $500,000. And by the way, all I need you to do is upload your driver's license. Right. And that's it. Wow. And that's, I, it's, it's fun to say, yeah. but I must tell you, it's super fun when I actually do it. And we're right. doing it all the time now. That's great. Let's talk about that process. <clears throat> um, when, 
when should a buyer reach out to a lender? Well, uh, I would push that right back to you, my friend, because you're the one probably that that gets a lot of inquiries. You get a phone call and they say, "Oh, I want to see this house or that house." You bet. Or, or maybe it's a friend of yours. Like, yep. what do you what do you say on that first phone call? Uh, on that first phone call, I say talk to a lender sooner rather than later. Because if you are seriously considering buying a house, having that discussion with the lender will definitely give you the parameters, the real parameters in the present day that you can work within. And oftentimes, people think they can not afford as much as they can. Sometimes they think they can afford more than they can. And they also don't know the different types of instruments available to them. Mm -hmm. So having a discussion with a lender and discussing the process, discussing all of their financial information, not even all of it at the outset, but, but going over that initial financial information and coming out of it knowing what they can afford and what different types of loans are at their disposal is is amazing for them and amazing for me because then we can really look in earnest and also when they find that house in particularly in this chaotic market they can pull the trigger they have you or a lender at their back and that pre-approval letter can be done instantly and they're ready to go. If it, they can't wait till they find the house of their dreams to start talking to lenders. Mm. It, that's just that's too late. It really Particularly is. in this market, it's just too late. Yeah. So there's no there's no such thing as as speaking to a lender too early. No, there's um, not. And and whether you're a a, a third-time buyer uh, or a first-time buyer, um, it's really never too early. Uh, and I, so if you are a first-time buyer, do listen up because this really, this really matters. And by the way, you may, you may be a first-time buyer who thinks that you're not qualified or ready to buy a house for a year or two or three. And after a conversation with a, a solid lender, you may find that you're way more qualified than you thought you were. And you yep. could call Laura and go look at houses tomorrow. Right. Right. And so. and people who already own homes need to know how that current ownership fits into their picture. In Amen. Terms of buying Especially right now. Yep. Definitely right now. Yeah. I mean, there are, as, as we know, there are uh, folks who are extremely well qualified to continue to own the home that they're in presently while falling in love with and making an offer on and purchasing that you know, that dream home down the street or across yep. town. Um, but for some, it, it doesn't quite work that way. And they, they need to find a way to sell their existing home before they can go buy a new house. And that, yep. of course, um, is possible. And, it, and we right. do it all the time. But right. maybe you want to address, Laura, in this environment, what that looks like if you are, say, in the second category where you do have to sell. How do you well, how do you handle that part of it? And then maybe I, I can tell you my part. I've had a number of clients who've been in that situation and we have been able to orchestrate the sale of their home along with the purchase and it's been seamless. I've had a number of those quite recently, believe it or not, uh, particularly even in this crazy market. But in some cases, the buying aspect of it, particularly when things are chaotic and you're in bidding wars, uh, makes it so that you do need to sell your home and either move into some kind of short-term rental or spend a month or two at a residence inn or have someplace else you can go. There are, you know, in this area, if some people have shore homes where they can go to the shore and live there for a few months. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's a puzzle. And the more I know about the situation of each buyer, I can help orchestrate that puzzle and help put those puzzle pieces together so they all work mm -hmm. as, as you do on the mortgage end. And the more you know about the seller as well, uh, correct. Especially if the seller has some flexibility on their timing, 
Right. While the market may be just white hot and the seller has five different offers, it's not unheard of to have a seller accept an offer for someone who has a home to sell, especially if that person that has a home to sell has already listed, already has offers coming in, and already has, you know, an opportunity to just pick and choose a, a settlement date. So it has to be <clears throat> pretty far down the line, though, because we're talking highly competitive offers. And so having a house sale contingency is still a tough thing to bring into a competitive bidding situation. So being having a place to go or if from the from the selling standpoint, if you can list your house for sale and maybe push your buyer out on the closing so that you have a a, a longer opportunity to look for the house to buy, there are ways to adjust the puzzle that way. Mm -hmm. But it is hard to go into a competitive bidding situation with a house sale contingency. Yeah. Understood. Yeah, I've had a few uh, success stories recently where people were in in homes that were very, very marketable, and they they did have them um, not only listed, but they had two or three, you know, multiple offers coming in. So they knew darn well they were going to be able to sell it quickly. Right. And then as soon as they had a signed contract, boom, they had already had their eye on two or three houses. They made one or two offers and and were able to put it together, and then close on their sale literally on one day, one morning, and then have those funds immediately available and, you know, two hours later, buy their new house. Right. 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 That's where communication comes in. It is. Let's let's go back to our talk about the process. So we've so yeah, we've sorry. established that buyers need to talk to a lender sooner rather than later get their financial ducks in a row, have that lender at their back so they're ready to pull the trigger on their purchase. And once they find that dream house and they are out of attorney review, they need to apply for that loan. So how does that work? What happens next? Well, if if it's someone that I've already been working with through the qualification process, and and typically once we talk to somebody about Hey, you know, in just in the course of conversation, hey, it sounds like you know you're qualified for a house a purchase price of of uh, let's just say you know four hundred thousand. Um, the next step is to have them do a pre-approval where they would go into our digital uh, online application system and put in their application, and I would get back to them. Uh, either either my my son and partner Ren would get back to them, or I would to say yes, this is now you know, we've gone from, it sounds like you're qualified for a $400,000 purchase to, hey, you're good to go. So go feel, feel free to make bids and make it happen. Right. So now we've gotten to the point where there's an accepted offer. At that point, you've, believe it or not, you've done an awful lot of the work, especially if you're one of those clients that falls into the digital verification category. Your application is finished. You don't have to do it again. Right. We simply take the file that we've created and by the way, none of that stuff costs you anything. That that pre-qualification discussion, the pre-approval, digital verification and approval, that's that none of it costs anything. When it comes time to to actually um initiate the mortgage, it's really frankly from my perspective, a few clicks of the mouse right. and the entering of a property address in a field that previously said TBD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you type in 123 um Main Street, and now the bells and whistles go off on my end because we have all kinds of uh, banking and disclosure uh, requirements that that have to take place. But at that point, um, the consumer doesn't really have to do much except for maybe upload some documents if they hadn't previously done so, or if they had previously done so, um, maybe some of those documents may have expired. Now. Just to be clear, if they fell into that digital verification category, they don't have to do any of that. Okay. But if they were a self-employed borrower or if there were a requirement for tax returns, let's say, some of those or bank statements, some of those things might have gotten stale because they're only good for about 90 days. So they would have to be refreshed. Other than that, 
the buyer can focus on home inspections. Right. And conversations with their attorney and conversations with their realtor because the mortgage has already kind of been done. Okay. So that's from the consumer's perspective, the borrower's perspective. From our side, we're now taking that information and um, verifying and confirming everything. We're also going to order an appraisal on the property. And I think we should, we will spend some time talking about appraisals, I'm sure. Right, right. Um, but let's assume for the moment that we need an appraisal. So at that point, we'll order an appraisal. And once the, um, well, actually before the, the appraisal even comes back, which can take a week, sometimes sometimes two weeks, but while we're waiting for that appraisal, I push the file down the chain so that an underwriter can take a look at the file. Ooh, and the infamous underwriter. The infamous underwriter. Yes. Everybody always wonders, what is underwriting? And what happens in underwriting? And where is underwriting? It's it's this mysterious <laughs> issue that 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 needs a little clarification. So tell me, Tom, what is underwriting? <laughs> well, for, for us, it's a combination of uh, machine and human being. Okay. Uh, historically, it's always been human being. But with some of the data and uh, and tech that we have, we're able to, in many cases, underwrite loans without the involvement of a human being. And again, that would be in tandem with those people who are um, digitally connected with their employer and their financial institutions. And if they're willing to make that connection, then they're more likely to go the digital underwriting route as opposed to having uh, a, a human being uh, scrutinize everything with their own pair of eyeballs. Right, But right. basically that underwriting process, whether it's digital or human, is is the yes, no. It's the, yeah, you're good to buy a house or, oh, goodness, you know, sorry about those uh, uh, late car payments you just made, but guess Ooh. what? Your credit score dropped and you're no longer qualified for this mortgage. Okay. Uh, don't let me what scare else? people. That's what, so what, rare that it happens, but it does. What else triggers a no? Uh, the appraisal. Well, the, the appraisal doesn't usually trigger a no. Um, sometimes it triggers a headache. If someone's buying a house that's really quite beaten up, um, if we consider that house, that collateral, if you will, to be uh, inhabitable, um, we're going to possibly require that some repairs be made prior to closing. Um, this is extremely rare, but it does happen sometimes where an appraiser might note that the uh, second floor ceiling is soaking wet and it's oh. dripping. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and Should the, you be buying that house? <laughs> if the appraiser has to point it out, you're in trouble for a lot of other reasons. But yeah, if yeah. they do... An underwriter is going to say, well, goodness, look at this picture of the second floor ceiling. It's leaking and the carpet's soaking wet. Hmm. I'm going to need to have a roofer uh, <laughs> inspect this house. And perhaps the seller is going to need to buckle up and make some repairs uh, before we can close on that. So in okay. that rare circumstance, an appraisal could cause a deal to completely tank. Right. Um, if someone wildly overpays for a property, Right, they pay five hundred thousand dollars for a house that really only appraises for four fifty. Um, that doesn't happen often, but I will say when it does happen, I usually get a a wink and a nod from the buyer as well as from the realtor that says, "Hey, let's do our best here, but we think we paid over value for this house, but we don't really care. We want it. We right. really want it." And so in that circumstance, it's nice because as a team, we've discussed it in advance. There's no surprises. The appraisal then does come in a bit low. And then the conversation ensues where, let's say we were going to lend uh, 80% of the purchase price of 500000 So that's a loan of 400000 Right. Well, if the appraisal only comes in at four fifty, we can only lend up to a percentage doesn't always have to be 80. It could be 85. It could be 95%. With an FHA loan, it could be 96.5%. So whatever the number is, let's just use this example of 80. Now we're we're talking about lending only 360,000 
because the buyer wishes to have 20% equity and we have to go by the lesser of sale price or appraised value. Mm. So we push our loan amount down to 360. Buyer says, I don't care. As I told you before, we knew it was going to appraise low. We really want this house. So now if they've still agreed to stay at that $500,000 sale price, they're going to have to put down their 20% of the 500 plus they're going to have to make up the difference between the 360 loan and the originally hoped for $400,000 loan. Yeah. So that's for the buyer that has lots of money and says in advance, oh, I don't care. It's fine. Whatever it appraises for, I'm going to buy it. Uh, others don't have that luxury. Right. So if there is a low appraisal and they simply don't have the money, that could derail a transaction. Right. What are you noticing in terms of appraisals? Are they coming in uh, at the purchase price, or higher or lower? Um, <laughs> I have one going on right now up in Essex County for uh, it, the appraisal came in about one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars over ask over what they paid for the house. Wow! So that's, they were kind of, <laughs> they were pretty happy. Odd buyers. in this market, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and, the seller and, didn't care so much. Six months ago, we were having difficulty because the data had not caught up to the the actual sales data, had not caught up to where prices were going. And so there weren't enough comparables for appraisers to be able to pull out houses that were showing those high sale prices yet. Now, I think we've caught up. And I'm not noticing appraisals being an issue. I, as, as you know, in my last podcast, I spoke to Beck, Beth Ogilvie, and we talked about at length about appraisals. And they seem appraisals seem to have caught up to the sales data. So we're not having nearly as many issues with appraisals coming in lower than the purchase price mm -hmm. and, and having a, a buyer-seller issue with that differential. But um, but we were before. Yeah. To I some would extent. yeah, I would agree with with your description there. I think six nine months ago, uh, there were some appraisers who just couldn't find the information out there to support some of the prices uh, that people were paying, and in many cases they were paying it sight unseen. Just right. uh, you know, having their their mother in law take a look at the house with a with a you know a video camera FaceTime. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love it. I'll take it. You know, right, right. Bid whatever they need. And that's um, still happening. And it is still happening. It, you're absolutely right. But I think the the words caught up are pretty accurate. Um, I've had very few issues with appraisals uh, of late. Uh, more and more, we're seeing um, transactions where an appraisal isn't even required, uh, which is, again, you know, speaks to the the digital nature and all of the data that resides out there in the cloud from all all these transactions and all these appraisals over all these past you know decade or two uh, there's just so much information out there now that a lot of particularly the agencies Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are if the loan to value is low enough and the the value of the transaction is reasonable enough um, and the credit score is high enough we're seeing many more transactions that don't require an appraisal at all. Now, how long should a buyer expect it to take from the moment they put in their formal application with you to closing date? How long is that taking? I know you're deluged with applications for all sorts of loans. So how long does it take to typically process the, the a home closing? Mm. Um, what do you need? Well, let's say someone needs to close in 30 days. Yes. Can they do that? What else do you need? Um, <laughs> well, how long, how long is their rate locked in? Yeah. In so case they need to push it out. I'm being a wise guy, but as you well know, Laura, this every, every buyer is different. Every seller is different. Uh, every attorney is different. Every... Title company is different, and every situation is different. Right, um, and particularly now with it being so competitive, what I'm, what we're seeing more and more of is where people are sensing 
not sensing, but learning that maybe the property that they're buying is empty. Um, and sort of coupling that with, gee, I'm renting right now and I'm on a month to month lease. I don't care if I close in two weeks or two months or, you know, four months. And, and using that intel to fashion an offer that gives them the best chance of getting the house. So if I have the luxury of, of knowing this, this borrower quite well up front, there may be a circumstance where we, we will say, you can close in three weeks. Wow. Um, you could even close in maybe a touch less than that, uh, depending on the appraisal needs. So my answer to the question sort of tongue in cheek was, what do you need? Right. And, and But it's really true. There are situations uh, where I've been asked, gosh, I've probably been asked four or five times in the last 30 days, can we close in 30 days? And I've said in each circumstance, yes, we can. And at the end of the negotiation, if they've been lucky enough to get the house, usually it's 45 days, mm -hmm. if not 60. Right. So um, 45 to 60 days for us is absolutely no sweat. And the the typical lock period, it's a great question, is 60. Yeah. So if we have a, a rate that's locked for 60 days and and the buy, buyers and sellers have an agreement to close, you know, by let's say day 45, but both parties are willing to close sooner, we're, you know, we're, we're able to close sooner in those situations. Okay. Let's talk about different types of mortgages. <clears throat> I'm assuming that fixed rate mortgages are the way to go for the most part. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are a number of different instruments, but for the average buyer that getting a fixed rate at this point, because rates are so low, makes the most sense. Is that correct or no? Um, that is, yeah, that's pretty correct. Uh, if, if I look at uh, the pipeline uh, that Loan Depot has, of course, I'm not looking at all, you know, 13 billion each, each month, but I think, I think our percentages of fixed rate loans are way, 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 way up. You know, well, I would guess well into the eighties, if not 90 percentage, 90 percent, um, fixed rate mortgages, whether it's a 15 year, a 20 year or a 30 year. Um, in fact, this is a total aside, but if you would like to have an 18 year mortgage or a 12 year mortgage, we can do that all the way down to, uh, to eight years. And that's more important for the folks that are refinancing and don't mm -hmm. wish to reset the clock. Uh, but interesting to know that that's available and some people are taking advantage of it. So what it used to be, Laura, was um, if you had a fair amount of income and, and it was pretty easy for you to qualify for a mortgage, you really do need to consider a 20-year or perhaps even a 15-year because you pay, it, you pay a slightly lower rate of interest, but you also, uh, that's rate of interest. But over the life of that 15 or 20 years, you pay just an enormous mountain less in overall interest. Right. So that's one conversation. But it used to be that if you were you weren't talking about a 15 or a 20, you really just talking about a 30-year mortgage um long term and then the conversation went, you know, do I want to have a fixed rate which is going to be higher or would I consider an adjustable rate which is typically uh a you know, lower and the shorter you went on that adjustable period, the lower the rate would go. So for example, these are all 30-year mortgages. You could have a 30-year fixed rate, never changes. You could have a 10-year adjustable where the rate would be fixed for 10 years, and then it would change annually after that. Or you could have a seven-year period where it was fixed, and then it would adjust annually, or, or perhaps a five-year adjustable. And the the shorter the term, the lower the rate. Um, long story short, it's worth asking the question depending on your circumstances, but the the five, the seven, and the 10-year arms are not dramatically different than the 30-year fixed. Right. So the long answer is, the long answer is to say, <laughs> the short answer to what I just tried <laughs> to say <laughs> is that most people are taking a fixed rate because it's just so close. Yeah. And you don't ever have to think about it. And if you wind up selling the house in two years, who cares? Right. Now, here in the greater Princeton area, 
generally, let's just say for the most part, we're in Mercer County, but we also abut Somerset County and Middlesex County and Hunterdon County. And and so the the difference between a conforming loan and a jumbo loan uh, it has a different cap in Mercer County than it does in those other counties and that it's significantly lower. So can you just talk to that for a minute? Because a lot of people, I think, don't know that. Yes. Uh, well, Mercer County, um, <clears throat> all counties uh, are looked at uh, on a metropolitan statistical average basis. Uh, all that information is compiled to to basically assess, you know, average sale prices for real estate in that county. And in Mercer County, those numbers add up to uh, a smaller number than the counties that are to the north and east of us. So the limit in Mercer County and south, okay, Burlington and Camden, um, those are the limit there is 548,250. So that means if if you're getting into a Fannie Mae conventional conforming loan, you can't borrow more than 548,250. In the surrounding counties to the north and the east, so Monmouth, Ocean, Middlesex, Hunterdon, Somerset, and then on really through all of the rest of northern New Jersey, the limit is 822,000. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. It's actually one and a half times what the Fannie limit is here in Mercer County. Um, and by the way, the Fannie limit in Mercer is the um, maximum, uh, excuse me, it's the minimum Fannie limit throughout the entire country. So wow. if you're out in, I'm making this up now, but if you're out in Kansas, I would suspect that you're probably going to be limited to 548,250. I don't think they have a lot of high balance counties yeah. there. So because of the demand for larger mortgages in some of these higher income, higher property value counties, Fannie Mae has tried to make it a little bit easier by expanding that loan limit in those counties. So, but do not be dismayed if you're listening to this and you say, well, gee, gosh, I'm going to be borrowing 700,000 and I want to buy in Mercer County. Right. That's okay. It just means that rather than having a Fannie Mae conventional conforming loan, you're going to be talking to your lender about a jumbo loan. And what's the difference? <clears throat> the difference is that um, it, the jumbo loans sort of are, they have their own rules depending on where that loan will ultimately reside. So if a Loan Depot in order to be competitive, is looking at, let's just say, 10 different lenders that provide jumbo mortgages. I'm going to look at those 10 and try to pick the one or two that have the best rate. Because at right. the end of the day, that's really what, what my client cares most about. So if I pick, say, two that have really fabulous rates, and I know the client's going to love that, my brain is working overdrive in the background saying, okay, what are the rules that this lender has? How do they underwrite? What are their loan-to-value limits? What are their credit score minimums? Um, what is that jumbo lender going to require in reserves? Reserves being money in the bank after you've paid your closing costs, after you've paid your down payment. Are you flat broke? Well, forget it. It's not going to work with bank A. I got to go to bank B. Right. So all of those things vary uh, from place to place to place to place. So that's where you need to have a real expert who understands that subtlety and isn't going to just say, oh, look, I can get you 3% and have the client get all excited. And then two weeks later, the phone call says, oh, gosh, you don't have enough reserves. We, we can't do that for you. Your rate's actually 4%. <sighs> now, so does... Does that make sense? The, it does. The... It does. There used to be a big difference, too, in, in rates between a conforming and a jumbo. It, it doesn't seem that the that difference is as <clears throat> drastic. And sometimes jumbos were and conforming loans seem to be at the same rate. Yes. So so it, it but it was off putting if you were looking at 
borrowing 700000 in Mercer County and having to pay the rate of a jumbo as opposed to being able to pay a conforming loan rate. Uh, do, am I correct about that? Yes. I, I think that's a, a function of supply and demand. Uh, we're getting a little out of my pay grade with this conversation, but the I think the, the lenders that are still playing in the jumbo space um, do have an appetite for for getting those loans into their portfolio. And I think that in many ways, they realized that their appetite was not going to be satiated if they were priced uh, dramatically higher than Fannie Mae, particularly in areas where uh, there were higher balance counties that they may have been uh, competing against. So I think as as it's gotten more competitive, the jumbo market has responded to try to be very, very close. So in many cases, it's an eighth of a percent uh, higher. In many cases, it's not even any higher. It's yeah. the same. Where do you see rates going? I don't. I know you don't have a crystal ball, just like when I get asked the question, where do you see the real estate market going? I don't have a crystal ball. But you've been watching the patterns in the last year or so, and you can, you're very savvy at being able to look at the economy and, and sort of see where you think, where you're, where you can give a guesstimate of what will happen to rates in the next year or two. Mm. <laughs> uh, if I had a nickel for every time. <laughs> Somebody said that to you. <laughs> hey, Nate, Nate, are you listening? Can you answer this one, please? <laughs> Nate is the man behind the curtain uh, who is handling this podcast. So thank you, Nate, for your hard work. Yes, yes, from both of us. So, um, so what what do you see? What do you see coming down the pike there, Tom? Well, you know, I, I have twenty eight years of of perspective, and rates are uh, just unbelievably low today. Um, they were even lower six months ago. Um, so. Gosh, but but they've been in this range in which we're trading now. Uh, let's call it two and a half to three and a half percent for you know fifteen years through thirty years, and you know of course that's all subject to credit score and loan to value and all those other things. But let's just say we've been in that two and a half to three and a half range now for goodness six, seven, eight, nine years—just a long, long time. Right. We haven't seen any of those crazy spikes where. Rates moved up to 5% and stayed there for six months or a year. We've just really been quite, quite low. So trying to guess the market and time the market for a real estate transaction is a bad idea. Yes. Um, but I still haven't given you my opinion. And my opinion is that I think we may see a little bit of upward pressure on rates um, for the next few months here, but I don't see it going to 4%. Okay. I, I see just a, a little bit of upward pressure and based upon some of the uh, the economic news coming in, we may see little tiny spiky periods of a week or two or three where maybe rates go up by an eighth or a quarter um, and then perhaps they might moderate back down again. Um, I do think that uh, once uh, inflation kicks in, a lot of economists think that we're we're staring down the barrel of some some heavier inflation in the in the months and years to come, and I think when that happens, there'll be even more uh, reason for rates to stay low as a stimulus to keep the economy moving and keep the real estate market moving. Good answer, I'll take it. <laughs> that <laughs> and a dollar fifty <laughs> will get me a, a bad cup of coffee. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about credit, the the tiers that exist in the mortgage market for credit score, because every everyone wonders where their credit score stands in terms of getting a mortgage. Can you talk a little bit about where those different tiers get cut off in number? Sure. Um, if you, my understanding is that that credit kind of works in twenty point increments. So, um, seven hundred to seven twenty, seven twenty to seven forty, seven forty to seven sixty, etc. Um, if you're 
score is 740 or better, you're you're really entitled to and will be quoted uh, the best rates that are available pretty much. Okay. There are some circumstances where <clears throat> maybe maybe having a, a 790 score might you might do a little bit better than if you have a 740 score, um, particularly on the jumbo market. But really, if you're at 740 or better, you're in great shape. Good. Um, and it doesn't really start to hurt too much <clears throat> until you get down under 700 or 680, and then you're gonna you're gonna feel it when when you get a, a rate quote. Um, and and a lot of people will say, "Gosh, well, what what would my rate quote be if my score was 740?" Right. <laughs> and you know, and I'll tell them because it's it's a pretty easy uh, data point to to get by just changing a couple of fields on a screen. But um, I, I'm uh, I'm making this up. This is not directly from a screen. So I'm going to say that if you're if you're at 740 versus 680, you're probably talking three eighths of a percent difference in rate. Okay. <clears throat> okay. And, and for for those that may be first time buyers with very little money and and perhaps uh, credit scores that they wish were better, um, the FHA product is a fabulous mortgage product. It's backed by the Federal Housing Administration. It requires three and a half percent down. So if you're buying a home for four hundred thousand dollars. You can uh, take out a mortgage of three hundred and eighty-six thousand. That's so. Pretty, that's amazing. Yeah. Y- yeah, you don't have to have twenty percent down to buy a house. You truly don't. Uh, the other interesting thing about the FHA loan is, in addition to the small down payment, um, you you can have credit scores that are quite low, um, even down as low as five hundred and eighty, which is if if you're if you're treading in the 580 range, you need to you need to get a little bit more organized and make sure you're paying your bills on time, and clean up those credit those derogatory accounts and those collection accounts. But if you are in that category, it doesn't mean that you cannot get a mortgage. And right. the FHA loans, unlike Fannie and Freddie loans, if you do have a much 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 lower score, yes, your rate will be worse, but it won't be as exponentially worse as it would be with a conventional loan. Okay. Good information. Earlier we were talking and you mentioned self-employed buyers, that it's a little more complicated a process for them. Can you address that for a second? Sure. Um, If you're a salaried employee, even though you could be fired tomorrow, and we all know that's how it works, it's, uh, you know, employment at will, if you have a salary of um, $100,000 a year, you divide that by 12, and we're going to use $8,333.33 as your income, period. Okay. No questions, no subtracting from that. That's it. If you're self-employed and you just jump on the phone with someone like me and say, yeah, I make 100000 a year. I say, great. What do you do? Well, I'm uh, I'm a florist. I, I own my own business. Okay, great. Good for you. Well, tell me more about the hundred thousand. And what we need to know for that self-employed person is what their track record is for the previous two years. Okay, so okay. they need to, they need to have been in business for two years. So if you just opened your flower shop six months ago, I don't care if you're moving. 17 truckloads a day of flowers out of your shop, we can't get you a mortgage because we don't have a two-year history. Okay. So we look back at two years of of not only income, but also expenses. And whatever that adjusted number is, so income, less expenses before tax, that's your number. So we look at that number for 2019. We do the same thing for 2020, and then we average it. If your number went down from 19 to 20, we want to know why. Okay. It's got to be a good, should be a good reason. This year, there was a very good reason. It was called COVID. Right. Um, But otherwise, we're looking for income to be relatively stable. If it's increasing, so much the better. And now for a self-employed borrower that's applying for a loan, let's say now or anytime really, we're going to want to see not only the 
19 and 20 tax returns. But we're also going to want to see year to date, how are they doing? Are they still selling flowers? Are people still coming in? Are their profits still similar to what they've done in previous years? And while we don't use that number to actually plug in as a hard calculation, we do want to see that they're kind of, sort of, in the realm of doing what they've done in years past. That makes sense. It makes perfect sense, but you wouldn't believe how many self-employed people don't want to get get us a profit and loss statement. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it's it really is part of the process. So be nice to your lender. Give them what they ask for. They're not trying to be difficult. They're just trying to make a good decision and make sure that this mortgage will be paid right. on time. Well, in, it, let's segue then into an even more difficult position. What if you are unemployed but have significant assets? Or what if you are retired with significant assets and want a mortgage? Uh, great question. And a lot of people just don't think about this. Um, but when you're retired, or if you've chosen an early retirement, um, chances are you didn't make that decision lightly and and that you knew you had something to keep you afloat until until you're called home. Um, and that, you know, we we can look at that the same way. So we will analyze information for a retired person much the same way we would analyze it for a self-employed person. What is the cash flow for your, you know, how do you survive? And in many cases, it's a it's a social security income. Of course, in fewer and fewer cases, there's actually pension income. Right. It's kind of a thing of the past, but yep. uh, we do see a lot of retired people now in their 70s and 80s, and I've done lots of loans for people in those categories. We look at their pension. That's a, That counts as monthly income. And then as far as assets, because l let's face it, a lot of people retire because they got a bunch of money in the bank. Those assets are going to stimulate income, and it may be it may be coming in the term in the form of interest it may be coming in the form of dividends and it may be coming in the form of capital gains when people are buying and selling securities so all of those get taken into consideration and averaged much the same way a self-employed person would so a little more paperwork but yep. absolutely yep. doable but doable and that's what's important is that it's doable yep and we are seeing for tax purposes a lot of seniors are choosing to take a mortgage now, um, uh, particularly with the blessing of their financial advisors because their portfolios are doing quite well and they don't want to disturb those assets. They'd rather yep. have them invested than, than poured into their house in the form of a down payment or paying for cash. Right, right. In fact, Laura, you've seen buyers that, that, uh, that go under contract as a cash buyer. Mm -hmm. But then they get a mortgage anyway. Am I right? Correct. 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 Now, I have seen buyers also that are true cash buyers. They really don't want a mortgage. And that always baffles me a bit. But they are mortgage averse. And so they they want to pay cash for that house. But with mortgage rates so low, this is a great time to take advantage of the mortgage market. It really is. It's money is cheap right now, so borrow it. Money is dirt cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, I want to thank you for being on my podcast and for answering a slew of questions about borrowing money and mortgages. And, and it's been fun. And I hope we can touch base again and do a check-in to see where rates are and to see how the market has changed in a while. Well, I, <clears throat> you are, you are among the very, very best real estate agents I've ever worked with. And it is always a pleasure to chat with you and to collaborate with you and to help people into wonderful new homes. And I would be glad to be your partner on a podcast anytime. Sweet. Thank, Thank you, you so much. That's so sweet. So if, any of you who are listening, if you would like to reach Tom Gates at Loan Depot, his information is on the website, 
And please feel free to reach out to him with questions. And Tom is a guy who gives no pressure. So there's he's he's great at answering any and all questions that you have, doing it quickly and and not putting the pressure on you. So please reach out to him for any mortgage questions, loan questions, refinance questions, HELOCs, all those good things. And and Tom, thanks so much. Thank you, Laura. And I can't wait to chat again. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Princeton Real Estate Podcast with Laura Huntsman. Our podcasts are produced by HG Media and can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 